I need to increase the volume in here just a tad. Yeah, it's really just overcoming the noise of the wonderful fellowship. And we're starting a few minutes late because I was so involved in the wonderful fellowship myself that I lost track of time. So it's not 12.05, but it's all okay. All right. So we're very glad to be back with all of you today. Right, Patty? Did we have a wonderful time in Newport Beach? Of course we did. It was Newport Beach. There's reasons people live out there and live in tiny little houses stacked one on top of another. Because weather-wise, as I told a couple of tables, every morning, every day is another ho-hum day in paradise out there, weather-wise. So we had a wonderful time, fought the L.A. traffic a couple of times, but it was great. But we are glad to be back. And the reason, biggest reason we're glad to be back is to be back with you guys. We love our life with you guys. We do. We do love our life. You too, Gail. <laughs> Gayla. We do. We, we love our life with you guys, and we are glad to be back. And um, let's see. We're going to begin 1 Corinthians today. But before we do that, and before I open us up with prayer, Sarah Jones asked me weeks ago to tell something of our, my story, uh, really Patty and my story, about how you got how I got from the corporate world to this world. Okay, so this is she came up and I won't say she harassed me. Yes, she did. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes, Sarah. Yeah, I do. I'll turn it up some more. How about now? Can you hear me now? Okay, yeah, just finding the right level for it. I don't want to have to yell either. I'll take it up one more notch. I'm figuring out how to work this now. How about now? Perfect. Let me memorize where that is. <laughs> okay, so, so here's basically the, basically the story. Okay, it's, person, it's a personal story and a ministry story all wrapped in one. Because when I was in my, edging toward my later 40s, um, I was married and my wife left me for her bartender at the balcony club, at the balcony club in Dallas. And I was, I was, you know, at that time, I was working on my PhD, doing some consulting, really hadn't been in church for like five years because my wife at the time had no interest in anything having to do with anything around church, God, Jesus, any of it. And I had let her influence me too much and I had too much work to do and I hadn't really been in a church in five years. So, but I was pretty, you know, pretty devastated getting dumped you know <laughs> no matter how well things are going or not you still feel kind of devastated being dumped she she moved out she took the bed and she left the dust bunnies under the bed which I thought wasn't a special slap in the face right so, I don't know. I hadn't really been telling people what was going on. And it was, I think any outsider would have seen that this was in the cards. And she had bought furniture and put it in a room upstairs. And I never really asked why. 
you know, she was accumulating furniture later on, I found out. So um, my, my brother, um, Steve, you know, when I, he found out was happening, he invited me to come to spend Halloween with him and his son and Patty and her son. Patty's husband, Gary, her, her first husband, was my brother's soulmate, my brother's very best friend that often people don't have in life, my brother's very best friend. And Gary um, passed away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 37. And so um, Patty's husband had passed away from cancer. My wife had dumped me. And Steve told me to come up, and we were going to take Steve's son, Bobby, and Patty's son, Robbie, out trick-or-treating and in, the, in Stonebriar. And, and we did, and it, was, and it was fun. And then at Thanksgiving, Patty's mom came to visit. And we got together for Thanksgiving, and I enjoyed Robbie, who was at that time seven, who was, who was seven, and, and, and got along well with Robbie. And Patty's mom told her that I looked like I'd make a good dad. And, and you know, honestly, I'm a very, very shy person. And so Patty invited me to go to a couple of places. I'll let you tell them the mansion story some other time. I'm, I can't really tell that myself. Uh, yes, it is, about the lack of my social skills. See, that, that's a teaser. But we quick, Patty and I quickly found that we really, really enjoyed one another, and we were quickly falling in love, and, um, and, when the year turned and we were getting more serious and kind of really thought that, okay, we might actually, you know, like get married or something, Patty told me that she had three rules, three things. One, I better not smoke. I said, oh, that's, okay. that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm not a smoker. Two, check, exactly. Two, I... I Robbie needed a good dad, and I correctly told her that I really enjoyed being a dad, and I thought I was a good dad, and I think the three sons, my help with Robbie, and then the two from my previous marriage, who they are grown, they're all grown up now, it's all going well, so anyway, I said, check, and then she said, number three, you need to be a Christian, well, I thought to myself, okay, I haven't been to church in five years, but... I was an Episcopal acolyte, so sure, yes. And I told her, yeah, I am, but I think we're in different rooms of the same house. And she didn't really know what I meant by that, but she said, okay. So we started attending Prestonwood Baptist Church. And because I was raised in the Episcopal Church, and even though I'd spent a lot of time in the Methodist Church, I'd been a Methodist since I was 20, um... There wasn't enough liturgy and stuff for me in a Baptist church. So after a while, I came to Patty and said, well, you know, this isn't really working for me. And we came and we found St. Andrew. And we pretty quickly got involved, right? We started doing St. Andrew singles, teaching that. I felt God moving in my life. And after a not 
that long a bit, um, because I was teaching at TCU at the time, a couple of the ministers here came to me and said, will you help us design a Bible academy because we want to emphasize the Bible more. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I did that, and then they said, well, of course, now, since we've hooked you on one thing, would you also co-teach the first class? I said, okay, I'll do that. So I was going to co-teach that with Catherine Self, for those of you who might remember Catherine. So um, the first meeting of that class was scheduled for September 11th, 2001. And it didn't happen. Obviously, we, we, the church gathered for that evening for other reasons. But it did begin the next week. And when that fall term finished, most of, I did most of it. Catherine really hardly came. I, being coming out of an academic setting, had evaluations that I had people fill out, telling us what they liked and didn't like, the way about the class was running and all that kind of stuff. And they wrote the kindest, most encouraging things. And I showed them to Patty. And Patty started getting kind of weepy and stuff. And she said, we have, you have to do something else with this. And so she was pushing in a very kind way, okay, <laughs> to do. Am I getting this right pretty well? Pushing me to think about what else we could do. And we thought for a little bit of taking, kind of going from church to church and doing things, and we even tried that once or twice, but that, that didn't seem to be it. And then Patty and I went to lunch with Robert Hasley at um, McGuire's, and we sort of told Robert what we had in mind. And Robert at the same time said, well, he had some ideas, and he wanted me to begin gathering background material for his sermons. And that became the background study that I've now been writing for 20 years. And, and with Patty's ever-constant encouragement, okay, <laughs> and, and the fact that Pat, Patty had a, had a thriving business with her husband, Gary, um, but he passed away, and not long after we got married, almost about the same time, she got a bid from a larger company to buy her company, and she sold it. So we had the means for me to basically not work much. And so for a while, I couldn't do it forever, but for a while. And what that turned into was I ended up basically working full-time at St. Andrew, even though I started out getting paid less than a pittance. And then I spent half a year on staff getting paid for five hours a week. And then I went half time for a year. And then at the beginning of 2004, I went full time. And, and it's been that way ever since. And in 2007, uh, because of the attendance at my 9.30 class, the, le the class I teach on Sundays at 11 o'clock right now, that began at 9.30. Because the attendance was so strong at that 9.30 class, it was sucking people out of the 9.30 service. And so Robert came to me and asked me to preach in the 9.30 service and move my class to 11 o'clock. I said, okay. So I started preaching in 2007. Of course, that's when I ended up preaching full-time every Sunday for 10 years then. So that then kind of brings us up to kind of how things evolved. How's that, Sarah? Is that enough?
But I want you need to know this. You know, I, I, I always felt God tugging at me, but it was really a two-person job because God was tugging and Patty was pushing. <laughs> her, her, uh, Patty, Patty's brother-in-law, Bill Murs, passed away about 15 years ago um, uh, from prostate cancer. And, and Bill aptly named Patty the dozer for a bulldozer. <laughs> My brother Steve, his favorite adjective for Patty is she's kind of relentless. Am I right? And you're, you're not ashamed of it, are you? I was even the gift of a small bit of yellow bulldozer that I have on my desk. You have a bulldozer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you need anybody to do that sort of work for you, Patty is the one. So there we go, Sarah. That's the story. I told Sarah I would do it on the first day of First Corinthians because we really had the time and we were just getting started into something new. Okay. Yes. Okay, so my PhD, I was working on from, I was, it, it, it bridged two marriages, okay? I was working on it from maybe like 1993 until about 2000 or so, maybe. 98, okay, so for about that, five years from 93 to 98, Another, another truth about this is I would not have finished the Ph.D. if, that, if it were not for Patty. Because you really, especially for an older person, I didn't think of myself as an older person then in my 40s. It, now it sounds ridiculous, but yeah, it's, it, it takes a lot of determination to get through the dissertation. That's why half of the people who do everything except the dissertation are walking around. They're called all but dissertation. Half the people who begin the program never finish their dissertations. But Patty, in her lovely way, <laughs> enabled me and pushed me to get that done. Get it done, Scott. Get it done. Get it behind you. So that, that, now my, my PhD is not in anything theology or Bible-related. It's an organization theory. And you could say, well, okay, Scott, but a PhD is... A degree, you are learning how to learn. You are learning how to teach. You are learning your way around um, scholarly writings and scholarly apparatus and libraries and all this kind of stuff, okay? And you're learning how to do that, and you're getting familiar with it. So when I started, when I felt God urging me to do this work and Patty urging me and Robert Hasley urging me to do this work, Robert had a huge part in this. Robert is the Robert's the reason I'm here, and um, uh, all of the skills not the not the content, but all of the skills that I did in the PhD program I have used over the last twenty years in this. I've even gone to biblical conferences, and I'm comfortable there because I know how they work. I know the apparatus. I know I know what they're about. I know how to use footnotes. I ha I know how to find. How can I put this? The better scholars, right? In and amongst all that stuff, it's the kind of thing you just kind of learn. And I did a lot of writing in the course of a dissertation, so it honed my writing skills that I've been using since. And anyway, it just all came to be. So somehow between Patty, Robert, and God, 
and Sarah it came to be. I know, I know, Sarah. You're right. You're right. You know, I found I found in this period when I had been devastated because I had been dumped, and Patty got me going to church. I really did. F- I just I just kind of became consumed with it. Talk to Lauren about it. I became consumed with it. I I would go to sleep at night thinking about deep theological thoughts around the Trinity and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how that happens. God does that. God does that. And Lauren has experienced the same thing, you know, that, that she's just, she finds there's these times when she's just consumed with it. Um, it's, it. I think you two have been a big part of her. Well, we have been. We have. Okay. Yes, sir. No, no, no. Organization like management and all that stuff, business school stuff. No, it, yeah, because it, it wasn't, it, I don't have a, P, my Ph.D. Is, in, is out of the business school in organization theory and policy, yeah. Yep. Yes, sir, Charles. Yes, sir. All of this story, how did you become so knowledgeable? Some people, the fancy word for it, some people are what are called autodidacts. Those are people who are very, very good at learning things on their own. And I am very, very good at learning things on my own. Secondly, the Ph.D. program teaches you how to disappear into a library, find things, and learn a bunch of stuff. Third thing is we live in an age when there is so much out there, videos, lectures, every, there's so much out there. The issue isn't how do you, how do you read it. You just have to find the right guides to it. You have to find the right scholars to sort of hook your train behind as you're trying to make your way through the ocean of material. And so very quickly, I found N.T. Wright. I found Richard Hayes. I found Gordon Fee. I found um, a little bit later Terence Fretheim, a few others. And those have all stood up over time. They're all widely... I didn't really appreciate it at the time. I didn't appreciate how blessed I'd been to find N.T. Wright at such an early stage but I was I just didn't know it at the time and 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 that's that's how it all that's how it but I and I plus I've been at it for 20 years now Charles and besides teaching is partly the content right but the other is is how you go about it right and I I'm some of us I've, I have teaching skills. Uh, my, fir- my job in the United States Air Force was to teach people how to fly airplanes, right? Um, and so, I don't know. It's just all kind of worked together, and pa- I've had this bulldozer with me all the way. <laughs> yes. Do you miss preaching on Sundays? I do. I do. We miss you too. I do, yeah. But you see... But you know, the problem is I really can't do that. I can do it once in a while, but Patty will attest that on a Sunday that I preach at 9.30 and then teach at 11 o'clock, I am so tired. And it's because 
of the drugs I'm on to fight this cancer, right? And um, they just, I told Robert one day a couple weeks ago, he asked me how I was doing, and I asked him how he's doing. And I said, you know what, Robert, the, the thing is, I just get tired of being tired. And he goes, I know just what you mean, right? And so that's why I try to conserve myself, and I try to manage myself and manage my energy. And it's... Um, Arthur is now senior pastor. He is much more interested in preaching than Robert ever was interested in preaching. And that's, it's, all worked, it's all worked well because I couldn't really do now what I did before the cancer came. It would just, I, I just couldn't. That, that's why the Monday class is staying on Monday afternoon because I, I know what kind of shape I'd be in by Tuesday afternoon and it would, it would make life pretty unpleasant. So, yeah. But I'm, preach, I, I'm preaching some Sundays. Like I, I've got one, two, three coming up. One in May, one in June, one in July, because, you know, people are gone. Yeah. At 9.30? 9.30, that's the only time I would be preaching, you know, because I got my class at 11 o'clock. <laughs> Don't want to miss that. Okay, new. No. Anything else? No, I do not have a photographic memory. At all, not in the least, not in the least. The way you me- the way you learn things is by learning them deeply. Okay, so th- this this is this is Bible. Okay, so I don't really memorize a bunch of Bible verses or anything like that. The way it happens, and the way I would recommend to people is realize it's like it's like in woodworking. See, teachers use analogies, right? So it's like in woodworking. You know what a lathe is. Everybody knows what a lathe is. You put the put the stick of wood on it, you spin it, you lay the chisel against it, and each turn takes off a little bit more. So each time I come back and back and back and back and back and back to the same place, my learning gets deeper and deeper. And then you begin to connect more dots. And I'm still always finding connections that I didn't know were there. And it's always exciting when I find the connections aren't there. I have a good memory. I think it used to be better. (laughs) Truth be told. Truth be told. It used to be better. But it's still good enough. But photographic, no. Not by a long shot. I don't even know if it would really be helpful. I don't know. I can't say because I don't have one. I'm I'm a fast reader. Used to be... Used to be faster. I, I'm pretty good at consuming. I'm at consuming information and making connections and things. I don't know. I've just. I've been. You realize, Andy? I've been doing this for 20 years now. This is. You talk about a second career. I've been doing this for 20 years. Did your pay up since then? What? Did your pay up since then? Yeah, my pay's up. The church has always taken very good care of us. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No complaints in that regard. Yes, okay, Missy. Yeah, we're pass the hat, well, I would yeah. say on behalf of me and my team here, we so enjoy Jesus legacy. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, Missy, that legacy, what, what I want the church to come to recognize is that legacy is embodied in Lauren Gerlach. I mean, she and I met five or six years ago. She had no idea she'd be going to seminary. She had no idea what God would want to do with her. 
but as she began to realize what God might want to do with her, I've been encouraging because I saw in her the gifts and graces to basically do what I have been doing, and and she will. I'm I'm certain they've they've seen it all at SMU, much less here. So I, I think that just just encourage her and and um, uh, get take give yourself some chances to hear her. Okay, and just and pray for her as she goes forward. Um, having just she's just finishing up seminary right now and going forward with her own teaching ministry. So for a while, though, for a while, I'm not leaving anytime soon that I know of. <laughs> so for a while, you see, we'll have both of us here. Yes. Yes, that was Lauren. That was Lauren. That's her. Okay. Anything else? Sure. Yes. The way you do that is just let me know, and there's an account. There's a restricted fund that I keep. A restricted fund is a fund that the church keeps track of that can only be used for one purpose as opposed to just operating budget. So, for example, some of you may know Barbara Staff. Do you remember Barbara Staff on Tuesdays? Wonderful woman. What? A, when she passed away in her will there was a gift um, for that fund you know and that fund is set up to further the Bible teaching and all that um, and that's where it would go anything like that that's that's where it went back in the old days when I with the Bible Academy we used to collect some money as best we could to help pay for the materials we used and everything all that money went into that restricted fund and um, that's what we do you see, there you go. But Scott, that's Barbara. Yep, I'm looking forward to seeing her again. See, how many of you remember Sydney? Okay, Sydney did the same thing. Sydney, right? And and Sydney gave a, a, a substantial donation. And Sydney's focus was on that book I wrote called Restart. And her gift we used to purchase enough copies of that to get the to get the printing price way down which is why we are still giving copies away to all the new members and everything so Sydney's legacy is living on in in that way and she I have to say Sydney was a hoot you know Barbara was a hoot they were both they were both unique people in my life they really were but they they both had big hearts for God and um, I'm blessed to have known them both and I look forward to sing them again. Hallelujah. Yes. Yes, when Sydney was in the hospital and, and she was not doing terribly well, she would still gather people around and, and I would take her bags of books and she would, she would pass them out to people and talk about them. She had a mission late in her life that, you know, and, but it's a, it was a sad thing. She, 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 she passed away too young in my opinion okay anything else anybody oh yes enough Sarah too much Sarah huh yeah so they've seen so that's why Patty and I 
that's why Patty and I have been a team for 20 years. This was never just my deal. It's always been our deal, and we've always been very aware of that, and we've always tried to model our marriage for some of the younger couples in the church actively in how we live our life here at St. Andrew. You know, so is that right, dear? Yes. Good. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so I'm going to go ahead and open us up with prayer unless you have anything, Patty, you want to add? All the online people, they are. Yeah, yeah, see, I'll, 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 but all that's long in the past, yes. Yes, yes, it all leads to. We're good. Okay, shall we pray? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here, and we, were, we are grateful to have been able to make that long journey through the Gospel of John. Um, and today we begin a new journey through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. A long letter, a challenging letter, a letter which reveals that the Corinthian Christians have lots of problems, um, as we certainly do ourselves. Different, but, but we all have things we would like to talk with, with Paul about, I think. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit who does move among us, who has called us to this fellowship, um, would open our hearts and our minds to you and to your word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends. So we are here to talk about 1 Corinthians today. So um, 1 Corinthians is a piece of correspondence. Okay? It is one long letter written by the Apostle Paul and I'm going to there's a little guessing, a little assuming, but we're going to assume 53 AD 53 AD which is about 23 years after Jesus' death and resurrection um, written by the Apostle Paul from Ephesus to back to the Christians in Corinth and I have a map We're showing you now that remember um, just to set the stage a bit Paul makes three missionary journeys the first one begins in maybe 48 49 AD and what Paul does is I'm going to walk across the map here he just basically heads up into this area of southern Turkey and that's pretty well the extent of it but then he comes back I guess gets refitted and reorganized and heads out on an extensive journey. This is his second missionary journey, and that is depicted on the map. He begins by heading over and revisiting the places where he had been on the first journey. Why? Because he is a pastor. He is his, he's founding these colonies of Jesus people, and he is going to go back there in order to just visit them, see how they're doing, make sure they're okay. Um, and then he leaves there, heads northward. God tells him, basically, that he is to head west. And so he heads west across um, over to um, what's called the Via Ignatia. It's a famous highway. 
that and begins to follow that southward. And if you look at some of the place names, you see, for example, Philippi. The letter to the Philippians is written to the Christians at Philippi. Thessalonica, written to the Christians at Thessalonica. And on southward, he goes to Athens, Acts 17, um, tells them he knows the name of the unknown God that they've been praying to, and then on to Corinth. And in Corinth, he preaches the gospel. Some people respond, not many, and they form themselves into house churches. And then Paul leaves and goes on and then writes this letter back because he's gotten some reports, principally from the household of a woman named Chloe, with lots of questions and lots of problems and lots of things that Paul needs to address about what is happening in Corinth. So, so let's, let's talk about Corinth for a minute. This is so cool. I am actually throwing this up here, the image up here from my iPad. It's just amazing to me. I'm <laughs> kind of old, you know, so this tech stuff is cool. Look, look what we can do. And then, I, then I'm going to go, boom. There we go. Okay. So let me go back to this one. Ah, that was so easy. <laughs> right. This, right. So you, ha you have the mainland, and then you have, this is called the Peloponnese. This is called Ikea. This is called the Peloponnese. And it l almost is an island, right? But not quite. There's a little tiny skinny piece of land that connects the Peloponnese to the mainland. And it's called an isthmus, right? An isthmus is a tiny piece of land that connects like what would otherwise be an island to, to the mainland. And this is where Corinth is. Corinth sat right on that isthmus. What you're looking at here is a canal that was dug and completed in the late 19th century, connecting the two seas. Whoop, whoop, back. Wait, Scott, you're losing your mind here. <laughs> connecting this with this. Because as you can see, if there were a way to connect the two, and a ship could do it, you could. this is a much shorter journey and safer journey than coming all the way south down here and then up and around, right? So really, um, from far back, in the time of the Romans, they were trying to dig this canal. Nobody ever really succeeded at digging the canal until the late 19th century. Um, until back in the Roman days, they tried various things. They um, kind of had like a ditch. They prepared and laid with stone, and they would un... un take the cargo off the ship and then drag the ship across the land and then refill it on the other side to sail onward. Even today, this canal is just not very useful. Patty and I have been in it. Some of you, if you go to Corinth, um, we did it with Robert in 20, 2018. And um, it's just little tourist boats that... Sure, why not? They have bungee jumping everywhere now. We'll be bungee jumping off the steeple of St. Andrew before long. So, <laughs> so, so, but, but 
obviously this is a very strategic location and that's important to, to know because Corinth was a city um, of substantial size. It was conquered by the Romans in 146 BC and they burned it to the ground. About a century later, they rebuilt it. And when the Romans rebuilt the city, it becomes a city of maybe 80,000 or so. Very Romanized. Very Roman in how it's put together, in the customs, in the, the layout of the city, in the, their whole sense. They were very they were very proud of their Romanness. It was settled by largely um, uh, freed slaves, freedmen they were called, and veterans from, who were retiring from the Roman army. And, and uh, to our knowledge, there was little or no um, uh, Jewish community in, in Corinth, as I recall. I hope I'm right about that. So, but it's, it's, let's just say if there's 80,000 people there, how, you wonder like how, okay, how, how many Christians are there? How many Jesus people are there? Um, that's okay. So, the, I turned to Richard Hayes, the scholar on Paul, for an answer to that. And in his opinion, which is certainly far better than mine would be, probably no more than 150 meeting in four or five homes. That's it. That's what you have to picture. Don't picture a place where you've got churches and people coming and go, coming to worship and going out for brunch afterwards or something like that, right? These are, they're meeting in church. They're meeting in people's homes. There's prob probably no more than 150 of them um, because largely as Paul travels, the gospel of Jesus Christ is rejected. It is not accepted by most people. For the Jews, they simply can't handle the idea of a crucified Messiah. For them, that is insanity. It's blasphemous. The idea that this man is God is blasphemous. And for the Gentiles, um, Ben Witherington put it about right. He said, you know, Paul had rolled into town and it's set up in the public square, and it start talking to them about this God named Jesus who got himself crucified. And they would leave chuckling, thinking, oh, how silly a God to get himself crucified. Right? That wouldn't happen to, to a God. And so Paul ends up being largely rejected. But in each place he goes, there are some people whom God moves in such a way, whom God calls into this growing fellowship of Christians um, that constitute the body of Christ and they meet in these, in these house churches. So there is in Corinth still, of course, this big tall mountain. It's called the Acrocorinth. Fortress up there dominates the city. It's a little bit like the Acropolis in um, Athens, except higher. And down here you can see some of the ruins of ancient Corinth. The story of Paul's arrival in Corinth is told in Acts 18. If you want to read it later, we won't, we won't do that now. But you can read the story in Acts 18 of Paul's arrival in, in um, Corinth. And he finds when he gets there, you know, a regular Romanized city. This is, this is 
Some of the stuff there's pretty well preserved. This is street and sidewalk in Corinth. Um, these are shop fronts. I bring this, see the little little arched entries are like, what would we call them now? They're not really kiosks, but they're little, I don't know, strip center, boutiques. Boutiques, that's a good word, boutiques. So um, Paul, we know from the book of Acts, spends 18 months in Corinth, and he meets, he, he's a tent maker by trade. Now, that doesn't mean he literally made tents. What it meant was he had the skills to make tents, which could be applied in other things. So he could work in leather. He could work in canvas. He would know how to make sails or tents or other things with the big needles and the big thread and all that kind of stuff. And Paul prided himself on the fact that he, la he was largely able, some of the time, to support himself with his tent making and he meets a, a couple of husband and wife in Corinth who are not natives of Corinth they're natives of, of southern Turkey but have been in Rome for a while and were did and indeed kicked out of Rome along with the Jews who had to leave Rome in um, 49 AD and Paul meets them they are also uh, skilled in tent making and they basically set up shop together. This is from the movie Paul the Apostle. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila, or sometimes Prisca and, and Aquila. And uh, they play a large role in the book of Acts. They play a large role in the New Testament. They keep pop, Their names keep popping up. So they're, they are important in the, in the creation of this, of this early church now understand as we're going to see in the opening paragraphs of Paul this is all God's work they are all called to this it is God who has called them to this it is God who has pulled them to this just as God has called all of you to this um, that's in part what makes a church not a club like the JC's God has called us here to St. Andrew for a purpose and we will ha in the course of this letter have ample opportunity to talk about that purpose but Priscilla and Aquila um, interestingly she is almost always mentioned first in the pair, pair um, probably reflecting her importance I guess and they were told in the book of Acts and Acts 18 that they meet an, uh, uh, an evangelist named Apollos, who you meet elsewhere. We'll meet him in 1 Corinthians. Um, and uh, Apollos has a pretty good understanding of the gospel, except he doesn't understand the difference between the baptism that Jesus has called for, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the baptism that John is, was doing in the river. The difference being that when John was plunging people into the river they were repenting and they were being cleansed of their sin in that sense but they were not being reborn in the Christian sense and so they aren't the same thing and they just help him kind of pull those apart a little bit I think it's just what we all do right we help one another kind of learn the Bible and learn our theology. We want to understand it ourselves. We want to help our friends, teach our children well. This is 
This is the faith has been passed on to us. We are expected to be able to pass it on to others. That's how that's how it goes. Um, okay. So as I said, Paul writes this in about fifty three. He's in Ephesus, which is right here. Big, major, major important place. Great ruins in Ephesus if you're into ruins. I am. And um, writes this letter back to Corinth. Can't be sure about it, but that's, that's a reasonable assumption. So it is one long letter, not necessarily all written at the same time. We don't really know. We know from the evidence in Paul's letters they were sometimes written it they were he'd write and then go on and do something else and come back and write more we know that he used secretaries who would write for him because there's at least one occasion where he says I'm writing this in my own hand right which is natural because letter writing was really a high pretty high level skill because it needed to be clear um, it needed to use as much of the papyrus as possible because it was very expensive. And so many, many people used professional secretaries to actually write the letters. And do we know how Paul actually went about conveying what the letters should say? Was it like dictation? How could you know that? We don't really know that. Um, but this ends up being one lengthy letter dealing with a long string of problems that have been put before Paul and the challenge is one of the big challenges is that we are reading somebody else's mail we're listening in on one end of a phone conversation right so what does that mean well, if you're listening in on one end of a phone conversation, what that means is that you have to make certain assumptions about what's happening on the other end of the conversation to make sense of it, right? Um, my, I, for me, the best commentary on 1 Corinthians is written by Richard Hayes. And one of the things I like about it is that Richard Hayes, in his... He's, he's confident in his scholarship and his many, 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 many years with this. Enough to imagine the question that Paul's responding to. And he says, if you do that, if you, will, if you will try to imagine the question that Paul is responding to, you will end up being a better reader of some of the more difficult parts of this letter. Because Paul... Paul and everybody around him, they know what all the problems are. They know what the le are in the letters. They've got it all. They've got all the correspondence. You and I only have one end of the conversation. So um, he isn't, Paul isn't sitting down saying, I need, to write a, I need to write a theological essay for these people in Corinth and send it to them. And then future generations including Frisco, Texas, in the year, in the 21st century, I'll have access to it. No, he is just writing a letter to the people in Corinth because they got problems, as these new Christians understandably would. And they've got questions, and he is sorting through them one after another, after another, after another. And, and I think it'll be a pretty, 
pretty fascinating journey for us, and it's very diverse. I mean, there's a lot of different types of things that we will run into in the course of this. So, with all that, any questions about all of that? It's always hard to know how much introductory stuff to do. Yes, Miss Patty. I really should have done that. Okay. So Paul, let me just give you a little bit of Paul's background. Paul was a Jew who grew up in southern, whoop, let me find that, let me find that map. He grew up like here in Tarsus. He grew up in southern Turkey. He obviously was driven, ambitious, energetic, and intelligent. He becomes a Pharisee. He moves to Jerusalem to study under one of the great rabbis of the day whose name was Gamaliel. Paul is a zealous person. When you first meet him, he we meet him in the Gospels by his given name, which was not Paul, but is Saul. And he is holding the, the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen to death in Acts 7. And we're told that, that Saul was a persecutor and tormentor of the early Christians, roaring through the early church like a monster. One, at, He asked permission to go up to Damascus to round up these crazy Jesus people and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment as the Jewish leadership is trying to stamp out this, this cult. And on the trip, they give him permission, and on the trip to Damascus, he, is, he meets Jesus. Jesus comes to him, and he's knocked off his horse, and he's blinded. And, and Jesus says to him, I am, I'm Jesus, you know, I'm the one you're persecuting. Why? And, and, and Paul um, is given some instructions about finding another uh, person to look for um, and he, he does that and his life has changed and he is he never surrenders his Judaism he is a Pharisee he knows it he, he is a in essence in Paul for Paul he's basically sort of a super Jew I guess because a zealous we've all known zealous people right people are just so focused and obsessed. Well, that obsession he transferred from being a persecutor of their church to being God's apostle to the Gentiles. And um, he spends about, there's about a 15-year period in the book of Acts that are completely silent about Paul. I call it his dark period when he's just, we don't know what he's doing. But he clearly in that 15 years is learning and growing and wrestling and and God is preparing him to undertake these missionary journeys which begin about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection 
Paul is met on the road to Damascus by Jesus maybe three years. This is death and resurrection. And we kind of can follow Paul for a couple of years thereafter and then basically lose sight of him. And then he emerges 15 years later for the third missionary journey. And um, Paul is really a perfect person to do the work that God has given him to do. Um, how many of you have ever been to Four Corners, New Mexico? Right? Yeah, just you ever stand there? Yep. Right, right, four corners right there. Yep. Got got four parts of your of your foot, each parts, right, in a different state. Yep. Well see, Paul's a little bit like that because first of all, he can function well in the Greco Roman world. He grew up in Tarsus. I'm with those who think that he given his intellect he would have read widely, he would have been exposed to the Greek philosophers and the rest of it, even in his Judaism, because I think his intellect comes so strongly through in his letters. So he was comfortable in the Greco-Roman world. He is a Pharisee. So is he comfortable in Second Temple Judaism, the, G the Judaism of Jesus' day? Darn right he's comfortable in that. Third thing, he is a Christian. He's a Christian. So he becomes the apostle of the Gentiles. Peter, initially in the division of labor, Peter stays in Jerusalem and looks after the community here, and Paul's vocation is all the rest of this, right? Um, and when he undertakes that first missionary journey and then the second missionary journey, he is doing what God called him to do. He will often refer to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. What he means by that is that he can't do anything but what he does. He just, he just has to do this. That's what God has called him to do. He feels impelled to do it. I have to tell you, early in, when Patty and I started this, this work here at St. Andrew, I, I felt that way. I really, I was asked that the other day by somebody on staff. I still feel that way. I still have a very strong sense of calling that this is this is what I need to be doing. Patty has for me, for us, a very strong sense of calling that that is what we need to be doing for as long as we can, okay, in as best a form as I can handle. That true, dear? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay, good question. Okay, so he was, he was a Pharisee who, he, if you were to ask him on his deathbed, um, are you a Jew? What do you think he would say? He, he would say yes, absolutely. He would say, yes, I'm a Jew. He merely embraces Jesus as, as his Messiah. He says, you know, most of my fellow Jews have got this wrong. The Jews who have this right are the ones who are embracing Jesus as the Messiah because he is the Messiah, and I met him on the road to Damascus. And he came to, you know, he's, one time he calls himself, I'm one untimely born because he didn't get to walk with Jesus, right? His, his birth into this new life with Christ was untimely in that sense. You could feel that he wishes he could have walked with Jesus as Peter did, as John and James did, and the rest of it. Um, 
as a Pharisee who goes around talking about this Jesus and is being largely rejected, what happens to him sadly is what you would think. In 2 Corinthians, he recounts some of his troubles, how he is stoned, how many times he's left for dead, he's shipwrecked, he's kicked, he's, he's tarred and feathered, we'd call it now. He'd go into a town, he would first go to the synagogue to try to tell them about Jesus. Why? Because his heart is for his fellow Jews. Of course it is. But once they start, once they kick, <laughs> I almost said a bad word, when they kicked him <laughs> really, really hard, then he would go to the town square and start preaching it to the Gentiles. Right? And there he would usually find a little bit better reception, not because Gentiles more interested, but because the sheer numbers means that there are a bunch more Gentiles. Jews are a small percentage of the Roman Empire at this time. So he would be pretty, he, he would, like we're going to meet in Corinth, he would, he would find people who would respond to his message, right? Now, why did they respond? Because they were spirit, somehow superior to their neighbors? No, because God called them. Now, the mystery of why God calls them and not others beyond me, above my pay grade, okay? But, but that's, that, Paul says, you've been called to this life. That's what you're doing here. You didn't just stumble into it. You've been called to this life. So, anything else? Doug? Be, you, okay, so what Doug is pointing out that in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches that get letters from Jesus in, in the first three chapters, actually chapters two through four of, of Revelation. And those churches, those seven churches of Revelation are all right here. And they were founded by people, let's say, let's just imagine, because we don't know, but let's imagine Paul, who worked a long time in Ephesus, that some of his disciples, right, his students, went elsewhere and founded churches. And then they had some more, and they went elsewhere and founded churches. So the book of Acts does not give you a complete rendering of the early church. It can't. Things are happening in North Africa. Things are happening. People go various places. What you get is the story of Paul because it carries the theology, really, of, of what is happening in the world as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Indeed, the book of Acts, you tend to think of it as a book really just all this very action-oriented because there are some... Act but you know what the book of Acts really is. It's really, it's really a string of sermons with some action kind of binding them together. We're going to do some of this in the fall um, when, we, when we look at, at we're going to do a 14-week sermon series on the Apostle Paul. And um, you will see some of this yourself. But it, it, once, you, once somebody shows it to you, you're going like me. I was going, wow, that's right. 
sermon, 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 sermon. He goes to Athens. What did you do? He preaches a sermon about the unknown God. Uh, let me tell you who his name is. The one in whom you live, move, and have your being. So, yep. Anything else? Okay, well, I have 10 minutes. I'm going to use them. To just get us, so I don't want you to leave here saying, gosh, we never even got to the letter. So open your Bibles. We're in no rush. <laughs> so let me, this is, notice how, this is my First Corinthians slide. Notice what it is. A letter. See, that's what you got to remember. That these, these are letters that, and how did we get them? Well, the people in Corinth got it. They were, somebody there was enthralled enough by the letter or taken by the letter, start making copies and said, we need to share this with others. And they get it and they say, you know, well, we need to make copies and share this with others. And on it goes, gets copied and shared, growing more and more around the Mediterranean until it becomes part of what's seen as scripture long down the road. 150 years one thing I like about in the movie of Paul the Apostle is that the Christian community in Rome is depicted as having like a little copying factory that Priscilla and her husband are overseeing where they're making a lot of copies of Paul's letters and sending them out I kind of envisioned something like that myself but anyway so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 1. Paul called. You see, that's an important word. Don't only think that ministers are called. You are all called by God to be part of the body of Christ. And as you'll see in this letter, all of you have been called to purpose, to mission, to vocation in the body of Christ. It's this one of the unfortunate things that, that tends to happen in the Christian church is that the line between ordained and not ordained gets too wide. There's like too big a gulf. It should not be that way. It's not that way in the New Testament. Not that way in the letters. I mean, maybe I'll bring out a little bit of that as we go into it. We are all called. Paul is called. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle simply means one who was sent forth. And to whom has Paul been sent forth? To the Gentiles. Because he's the perfect guy to do it. You know, God's pretty smart. Paul's the perfect guy. Previously Saul, previously a persecutor. If there's somebody who understands what the power of God is, what the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit is, it's, it's this man. He knows. And he's supposed to go out and tell other people. And that's his, that's, he has, that's his calling, to go preach the gospel. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. By whom? The will of God. Right? He didn't just think all this up on his own sense. This is God's work that he is about. And he is not by, he's, he, he is accompanied surely by others but at least by one brother one fellow Christian named Sosthenes whom we know from elsewhere 
okay, Sosthenes. When Paul traveled, he would have traveling companions with him. It was a relatively safe world to travel in because of the governance of the Roman Empire, um, much safer than it was, say, 100 years earlier. I'm sometimes asked, well, well, why was Jesus born when he was? Which is, in the end, of course, an unanswerable question. But I often like to venture answers to unanswerable questions. For the first time, a person could do what Paul did which is travel throughout the eastern Mediterranean in relative safety. And it, and it said that he walked perhaps 10,000 miles. But he always had companions with him because there, there's no motel sixes or anything, you know, you <laughs> right? No Denny's? How do you do this without IHOP? <laughs> Better question, how the heck do they do any of this without the benefit of coffee? That's my question. <laughs> That's the first question I'm going to ask Jesus. How do you do, you do this without coffee? Well, okay, so so um, Gary's asking, did it help him that he was a Roman citizen, as he was? Possibly, but I don't think bandits care too much. So mostly he just needed people with him. He needed people to help write the letters. How were letters carried? Okay, we may not get very much further. <laughs> then how do we far do we get? Six words. Okay. <laughs> You're in no rush. Okay. The Roman the Romans had like a postal system, but it could only be used by the Empire. Which means Paul would be out of luck. So what do you find in his letters? You find that the letters are being carried by so and so. And what I will Maybe we'll, we'll take a look at a couple of these as we go along. Sometimes the letters are carried by a woman. That is the letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans, the keystone, the, this, this magisterial piece of theological writing by Paul is to the church in Rome, which he had not visited, is carried by whom? By a woman which tells you, in my view, nearly everything you want to know about how Paul viewed the role of women in the church because you knew that once, once they got this letter, the Christians in Rome would have a thousand questions. And to whom would they turn first for answers to those questions? To the person who carried the letter, came direct Paul's emissary, basically. So, you know, it's... it's um, Anyway, okay, did I finish the, at least the first sentence? I did. We did. All right, then. We finished verse 1. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> is there anything else before I close us with prayer? Anything, Patty, from any of the online people? Yes, we need to pray for Cora Okay. Okay, so Cora Marburg, who some of you know, had to move away, but she is suffering from uh, pancreatic cancer herself. Okay. She's having trouble with some of the chemo, which is not at all surprising. So please keep Cora Marburger in your prayers. And I know that there are, 
many prayers that we all carry in our hearts. But you see, in Romans chapter 8, one of the wonderful things Paul reminds us about is that the Holy Spirit, who dwells in each of us, lifts up our prayers to God. The prayers that we are unable to articulate. The prayers that, we, you know, because I don't always remember everything. But stay in conversation with God because the Holy Spirit will lift your heart, your, your, your prayers up to God. Um, uh, so in any event, we'd, let's pray. Gracious God, we, we sort of began this journey through 1 Corinthians today. Help us to grasp that we are all called to this. That we're called to the body of Christ. Even before we're, we're called to be members of St. Andrew, we are called to the body of Christ. We are called to be one with Christ. We are called to your work, to your service. Every single one of us and your Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, empowering us to do that work. Um, and we are grateful. And we lift up to you the prayers in our hearts. We lift up to you the Korah. Um, we lift up prayers of peace and justice in our nation. It's just, just so much division. Um, but let us find peace and unity in you, for indeed there is nowhere else to turn. All this we pray in the great and glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.